0: i'm scott i'm bill and we're the trade guys you're listening to the trade guys a podcast produced by csis where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand i'm h andrew schwartz and i'm here with scott miller and bill reinch the csis trade guys
1: On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Scott and Bill talk about the Nicaraguan sugar TRQ decision, the lapse and renewal for trade adjustment assistance, and Senator Whitehouse's new proposal for CBAM. All right. Hi, trade guys. Uh, You're stuck again with a trade gal as a temporary fill in. Uh, let's get started today with something that's not so sweet, which is a new story about uh, TRQs involving Nicaraguan sugar. Uh, for starters, could you remind us what a TRQ is?
0: Yes, TRQ stands for tariff rate quota. And what it means is that there's a quota and in the sense that, in this case, sugar coming into the United States up to that quantitative limit pays a low tariff. And then any sugar that from the same play, country that comes in above the quota pays a higher tariff. So it's not an arbitrary quota in the sense that you reach the cap and that's it, no more. You can continue to import,
2: but you import at a higher duty. And duties on sugar are very high outside that uh, quota.
1: So what's the new decision with Nicaragua? What does that entail?
0: Well, we took away their quota. And I could go on at great length about the the problems of the sugar program. I've Full disclosure, when I was lobbying for the National Foreign Trade Council, we opposed the sugar program. And it was one of the most frustrating things I had to do in my entire time because everything we did, we lost. And we lost big. What I learned is, you know, you take on the sugar growers at your peril. They are very, very effective when it comes to lobbying in Washington. and when we would take on their programs, not only did we fail, we actually made it worse because they passed new things that were worse than the things before. It was a frustrating experience. One of the ironies of the program is that, you know, the the program permits a certain amount of sugar to be imported at a lower duty annually. And the Department of of, um, Agriculture, I guess it is, or maybe USTR, divides that quota up amongst nations that want to sell us sugar. And it becomes kind of an embedded thing. That is, if you had the quota last year, you're probably going to get a quota this year. And there are adjustments that are based first on the total size, which has to do, which is related to estimates of what supply and demand are going to be in the United States that USDA makes. Not only, it makes more than once a year. So there's usually in the spring, there's a quota adjustment in which they may allow more in because they anticipate a, a smaller crop in the United States or more demand, whatever it is. And as the overall quota is adjusted, then the individual countries' quotas are adjusted up or down. If you don't fill your quota, sometimes you discover it's taken away from you and given to somebody else. And all the countries that get quotas have lobbyists in Washington who spend their time trying to maximize their client's quota. So there's a lot of internecine warfare that goes on here. It's not just lobbying the government to increase the total quota. It's, you know, the Philippines lobbyists lobbying to increase Philippines quota, which means that somebody else is gonna get smaller. So it's uh, like a rugby scrum. There's a lot of things going on underneath that you don't see. In this case, this was basically a political and human rights decision. The government decided that Nicaragua was, was uh, number one was it was increasingly moving in an, authori- in an authoritarian direction, suppressing its people and denying uh, human rights uh, in the country, and that that warranted
2: a response. This was the response. I think it was twenty-two thousand tons, is what. Uh... Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, Bill. Bill makes a good point. This is one of the few remaining U.S. farm programs, which is a supply management program. And supply management programs work basically to short the market and prop up prices. And so the imports are very carefully managed in order to not upset the balance that keeps American domestic sugar prices high enough for American growers. To be profitable and so it's a messy program and it's one that requires a lot of management day-to-day many many of production agriculture programs and there's still a a lot of farm programs but many of them are not trade distorting at all they're mostly counter cyclical payments or loan guarantees things that help farmers weather the ups and downs of the market sugar is one of the last remaining supply management programs and as a result, you get into this sort of thing. Now, when I saw this announcement, first of all, I wasn't really surprised given the amount of micromanagement and the this administration's desire to implement a values-based foreign policy. But then I looked up and recalled that Dan Ortega has been around leading Nicaragua since the Carter administration. He was president from 1979 to 1990, and again from 2007 to the present. And I'd just like to know when the United States government noticed that the Ortega government is authoritarian and corrupt. It seems to me that maybe people in the Carter administration had that view too. So I'm not really sure what changed because it has, to my knowledge, always been, it's a government that has authoritarian strains and has had a lot of high levels of corruption. And regrettably, the institutions in Nicaragua have never been all that strong. You know, it's an odd thing. So I, we're all of a sudden getting around to it, I guess, but that's uh, that's where we are.
0: We could get into the Iran-Contra
2: controversy and the efforts of the Reagan administration, but I really don't want to do that. Well, yeah. I mean, more, more recent history, I think, is more relevant, which is Nicaragua happens to be one of the 20 economies that has a free trade agreement with the United States. As a free trader, I reflect on this with some uh, some regret because what it does is it exposes the limits of free trade as a cure for economic problems and as a a way to help economic growth, I still believe free trade delivers higher economic growth. But when you look at what happened in Nicaragua post the, uh, it's joining the Central America, uh, DR Central America Free Trade Agreement, CAFTA, it's still incredibly poor. It still didn't really attract much investment. And Ortega or not Ortega The people of Nicaragua have never been demonstrably better off because they have free trade with the United States. One of the things a free trade agreement should guarantee is a degree of stability in the agreement. And most uh, investors and, and traders look for that stability. I'm not sure it's happened. And of course, this is a move against stability. But I'm not sure what to make of it beyond that, Bill.
0: Well, it raises kind of a policy issue and almost sort of a moral issue that I've wrestled with for years because we're we're doing this to punish the government of Nicaragua uh, for very good reasons. I, I don't, you know, I, it's very hard to find anybody who def- in the United States who will defend the Nicaraguan government. Uh, but the reality of these things is the victims uh, here are not the Nicaraguan government. The victims are the poor people who work in the sugar fields, right? people that harvest the sugar and, and their families. And we've seen this over and over again. Well, one of my more dramatic stories was when we had the first round of sanctions on Myanmar back in the aughts, I guess, not before the military junta gave up the first time and turned the country over to Aung San Suu Kyi. And, you know, the United States imposed sanctions there They cut off imports of various things, uh, mostly apparel in that case and, and uh, gemstones. And when you looked at what actually happened, the losers were a whole bunch of very poor women who were making apparel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the junta didn't really suffer, right? They did in the sense that some of them owned the companies, but, you know, the real victims were poor people. And it makes you sort of stop and think about, are we really pursuing policies that that are achieving our objectives, you know? And is this going to matter to the Nicaraguan government that we cut their sugar quota? Maybe it will. It won't affect the United States very much because the quota will be reallocated to other countries. And the same amount of sugar will come in and the market will not notice any change because the consumer doesn't pay that much attention to where the sugar came from. But we've created a new group of people in Nicaragua who are going to be poorer than they were before by doing this and makes you wonder if maybe if that's the best approach or not. I don't have an answer to that, but it's something that I think about every time we sanction somebody.
1: So in this case, if the Nicaraguan government decides that this really does matter, what recourse do they have? How can they change this policy going forward?
0: The United States government hasn't identified criteria in their decision, as far as I know. They haven't said, all right, if you do X, Y, and Z, we'll change our minds. It's really up to the Nicaraguan government to decide if it wants to do something. Since our decision seems to have been based on two things, which is the authoritarian trend of the government and also its support for Russia, you know, the the demand from the U.S. would be fairly significant. I mean, basically, it would be to, Ortega, change your policy and, and change the way you're running the country and i doubt that they'll be they're very interested in doing either of those.
2: Well look, this is the, one of the downsides of a values-based foreign policy, all right? Is when you manage a trade agreement, you're typically managed against a set of criteria and whether your trading partner is meeting their obligations. And so a, a WTO dispute or a dispute in the USMCA is often about whether your whether your trading partner is or is not following the rules they agreed to and that's much more cut and dried and also it lends itself towards solutions that restore the predictability of the, the trading relationship when you move into this this area of values it's like well we don't like what you're doing well what are, when are you going to like what i'm doing and the, the answer may be never i don't know so it's a, it's a very elastic and and not particularly not inclined toward resolution i think that's probably as a practical matter it's not obvious to me how the Nicaraguans fix this in any reasonable way or whether whether we've even created an expectation that there's something to fix. That We don't like you. You don't get your quota.
1: Well, let's turn now to another topic, which is domestic in focus, and that is that Congress has allowed Trade Adjustment Assistance, or TAA, as it's known, to expire. Could you, first of all, remind us what TAA is?
0: Yeah, this is a tragedy of the first order. I'm really upset about that. I spent 20 years on the Hill defending and expanding this program, and it's really sad to see it go away. Trade adjustment assistance was part of a deal struck way back in the Kennedy administration to secure labor support for trade liberalization agreements, tariff cutting agreements at the time. And the concept was that if people lost their job because of a trade agreement, in other words, they lost their job because of an action the government had taken, the government had some obligation to provide them some assistance. And what trade associ- trade adjustment assistance, essentially the core of it was extended unemployment insurance so that you get unemployment compensation for a longer period of time and you get access to training programs that the government will pay for. So you can be retrained and get employment in some other job, other profession. In recent years, a lot more was added to it. A relocational allowance because, you know, one of the things we learned over the 90s and aughts was that the unemployed workers are in one place and the new jobs are often somewhere else. And so if you can't move, don't have a car, you know, you can't begin to look for the job that's elsewhere, even though you're qualified for it. So relocation allowances went into it. Tax credit for health care went into it because when you lose your job, you lose your health care. And that creates a new financial burden on you. So the government was helping there. An allowance to help you search for a job, which in other words, people who would help you build up your resume and teach you how to successfully interview and, and look for jobs. A whole bunch of things were added, but the core of it is extended unemployment benefits, which allows you to have a period of, of retraining. And the program has been regularly extended. The program actually is an entitlement. So the people that are getting benefits now will continue to get them. But what ended June 30th, sort of a month grace period, I guess, was the authority to continue the program. So no new petitions can be reviewed. No new benefits can be granted. And the bells and whistles that were added on, the last thing they added on was an interesting, which was a partial salary adjustment. So if the new job you got paid less than the old one that you lost, the government would pay part of the difference in order to reduce the gap between, between what you were making and what you're going to be making. I think reflecting the fact the fact that a lot of the transitions involved here took people from manufacturing to services and to services, some services are very high paying jobs. People tend to think that, oh, services jobs, that means you're working at McDonald's. That's a service job. But, uh, you know, being a doctor is a service job, too. Being a lawyer is a service job, too. Being an architect is a service job. There's a lot of higher paying service jobs. But, you know, there was this wage gap adjustment provision. Those things are all gone. The reason they're gone is complicated. I think probably the ostensible reason is that the Republicans have, in the past few times that TA has been renewed, linked it to Trade Promotion Authority, which is authority for the president to negotiate new trade agreements, and have said, you know, we're not gonna support job retraining unless the Democrats support Trade Promotion Authority renewal as well. That's what got it over the finish line in 2015. The Biden administration has no interest currently in Renewing Trade Promotion Authority. It expired the same day as TAA. And the Republicans have been saying, if you don't go for TPA, we won't go for TAA. And the result is nothing. And the result is we're not fulfilling our obligations to all these workers.
2: And it's really a tragedy. Yeah, I feel like this is a memorial service or a wake for TAA. But then again, it, it didn't quite make it to Medicare eligibility, but it is a 60-year-old program. So Bill's right about its conceptual value. I have always thought it was exactly the right concept. Unfortunately, over the years, it had several what I'd consider executional weaknesses. One of them is that because it was trade adjustment assistance, the jurisdiction was in the Ways and Means Committee. And the Ways and Means Committee basically used, used it effectively in terms of a renewal assistance for when you renewed trade negotiating authority, you, you advanced protection for workers at the same time. That was congressionally effective, but because it was Ways and Means jurisdiction and not what we call the HELP Committee, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, it was never really a big retraining program. And ultimately, there aren't a lot of, there's a lot of turn, churn in the economy. A lot of people lose their jobs every month. But not a lot of them are, are due to trade and not a lot of them would ever qualify for TAA. So it was by its structure and jurisdictional decisions, small and almost too small to be of much use. When I would say that, there are, of course, losses due to trade. But keep in mind when the Department of Labor reports the monthly job growth figures, let's say 300,000 net new jobs, that number is, is the difference between jobs gained and jobs lost. And every month, there's roughly, speak, is an order of magnitude uh, example: two point three million jobs created and two million jobs destroyed of all sorts. Dry cleaner shop closes, you know, small restaurant closes, bar lays off staff, whatever it is. Lots of things can cause job losses, and what gets reported is just the net number. But of that two million a month, let's call it two and a half million a month, job churn, not all of that would ever qualify for trade adjustment assistance. So. That that was the next weakness of the program is it focused on losses. You qualified for it when trade was the villain, so it became sort of a rod for companies' own backs that you reported. You wanted to help your workers get adjustment assistance if they qualified for it, but by listing it, uh, you become guilty of closing plants or or operating in such a way that use trade agreements to kill U.S. jobs. So it was never much fun. Now what happened, I think, ultimately is uh, as Bill mentioned. In the aughts, with a renewal of Trade Promotion Authority, particularly in 2015, the business community kind of made peace with TAA and had no problem with extending it. They'd learned to live with it and took it forever. Like I said, 62 was the original authorization. So by 2015 is, you know, sort of late in life for TAA. But by that time, the labor movement in particular had thought its usefulness disappeared. And that was most evident in the House vote on Trade Promotion Authority in 2015, where the House voted and passed a bill that deleted Trade Adjustment Assistance, led by Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. So the Democrats literally voted against Trade Adjustment Assistance in the House in 2015 because they thought they might derail Trade Promotion Authority. And the so they had had one of these odd sequence where T A was defeated, TPA passed anyway, and then they went back and passed TAA before they sent it to the Senate. <laughs> and So it showed that the political power of TAA had been perhaps a spent force at that time. And I think ultimately it could never get big enough to be a real jobs retraining program, and it didn't have the political gravity to carry itself forward. And I think the combination of the two Meant no, It became sort of an orphan in, in its old age.
0: A short commercial here. Scott and I were involved in CSIS's commission on affirming American leadership that produced its report in January of 2021. It was co-chaired by the late Bill Brock and uh, Charlene Barcevsky, both former USTRs, and Fred Smith, the CEO of FedEx. And one of our recommendations addressed TAA, And basically, we concluded that It was increasingly hard to justify treating workers who lost their jobs because of trade differently from workers who lost their job for other reasons. They've all lost their jobs and they all need government assistance in trying to find a new one. So what we ended up recommending was basically folding TAA into the overall unemployment insurance program, the UI program. But in doing so, what we recommended is that the UI program be expanded to include all the various uh, components of the TAA program, the job search allowance, uh, the retraining, the healthcare, the wage gap, insurance, relocation uh, assistance, all of that, so that we have an expanded UI program. We are, if not the last in G20, well, not the last of the G20, certainly in the G7, we are probably the last in terms of the amount of assistance that we provide to unemployed workers. It's just really criminal, I think, that we don't do more the country that, in my estimation, does the best is Denmark, which has a very extensive program. Some other uh, time we ought to go into it in detail because it's fascinating the way it works. But, uh, you know, we, this is really a failure. It's a failure of Congress. I think it's a failure of leadership by the administration. And as in the Nicaraguan case, you know, the victims here are, are going to be our unemployed, unemployed workers. You know, members of Congress are not going to lose their jobs because of this. But there's a bunch of workers out there who are, and I'm depressed about it.
1: Well, is this for sure the end of TAA, or is there a chance that Congress could reauthorize it in the future?
2: I think it'll be back. Yes. Uh, I think it was uh, Bill's favorite president, Ronald Reagan, who said there's nothing more permanent than a than a temporary government program. <laughs> so it, it may return uh, uh, what we least expect it. But uh, it's one of those things I, I would agree with Bill. Ultimately, you've got to fix the inherent sort of structural problems of the program to make it have any political strength so that it actually does something for you in a negotiation that that it's worth advancing. And I definitely think it is on a, a very practical and policy level. It's just you've got to make the politics work.
0: It's worth noting that renewal was in the House China bill. And it was one of the things that got dropped along with everything else in the trade title when they cut their the chips deal. There has been talk since then that maybe there will be a trade bill. Uh, There's been talk in the House about that. I think Scott and I are probably both skeptical about the likelihood of that happening this year, but that that doesn't mean there won't be an effort to do it. And if there is an effort to do it, I'm fairly confident TAA will be in there. It's predictable what will happen. If they try to push TAA forward, the Republicans will say, well, what about TPA? Uh, And then we'll just get back to the same debate that we've had for the last couple of years. A little leadership from the White House wouldn't hurt a thing. No, and it's been unfortunately lacking on this particular issue.
1: Well, let's turn now to climate change and trade, where there's been quite a bit of news recently. Senator Whitehouse, who spoke recently at CSIS, has put forth a new proposal for the U.S. equivalent of the European Union's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM. What are the contours of Senator Whitehouse's plan?
0: Well, he wants to... He wants to create an analog to what the Europeans are doing. He's attempted to do it in a way that would resolve some uh, WTO problems. I think it's debatable whether he succeeded. He thinks he succeeded. The basic idea of a carbon border adjustment measure is to provide, is to uh, basically protect domestic industries that are green or greener than imports from imports coming in that are less green that are presumably cheaper because their manufacturer has not undertaken all the various things, decarbonization things that their American competitors have. And so that gives them a, a, a you know, an economic advantage. Their steel, good example, may be cheaper because it's dirty steel, basically, and the American green steel will be more expensive. So let's have an offset on those imports coming in so that American companies... Both American companies have an incentive to continue decarbonizing and foreign companies have an incentive to do the same thing because uh, not doing it gives them no economic advantage. That's the theory of it, as Emily can testify, because she's done an awful lot of work on this. Figuring out how to calculate that is a very complicated problem and figuring out how to calculate the amount of carbon embedded in an item is a complicated problem. And one of the debates is whether you go firm by firm or sector by sector or exactly how you do it. White House's bill uses a sort of an average system. And I think it's a system that would work well and wouldn't have WTO problems when you're dealing with countries that have data and have data that is uh, verifiable, that's the term that's used in the bill, that allows you to calculate accurately uh, what their uh, carbon content is. I think the problem comes in when you're de- dealing with imports from countries that don't have that kind of data, which are mostly developing countries, and you really have no means of accurately assessing what their carbon content is. And at that point, I think what I, Emily, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he uses a, a US industry average, doesn't he?
1: For foreign imports, it's the sectoral average of the grid emissions intensity in cases where there is not adequate firm-based data?
0: I think that may run into WTO problems if it gets litigated. I think the more important issue here at this point is that this is, I think, a step forward in getting Congress to grapple seriously with the issue. And in a way, it's, it's a reflection of some things that we've said in the past, which was that the Europeans moving forward on this are going to stimulate other people to do the same thing. And that's what you're going to see happening here. Senator Coons introduced a previous version of this a year ago. And now you have the White House version, which is, I think, a refined version of the Coons bill. As I recall, Senator Coons is co-sponsoring White House's bill. So they're all marching in the same direction. Still a work in progress. This is not the final version, but it's moving things forward. I asked Emily this morning before we started to do this, whether the the Manchin-Schumer deal has any impact on the bill? And the short answer is we think not, but we have to do further analysis. So we'll probably
2: be talking about this again in the future. Yeah, look, this is an area that's really worthy of the time and energy that people are investing in. Ultimately, you you wanna price carbon uh, in your economy to manage carbon output as efficiently as you can. You've gotta have a way to adjust at the border if you price carbon. And so the rules for border adjustment are something that trade agreements are pretty good at establishing. And that's a sensible way to do it. But this is, first, mind-bogglingly complicated, which is why it's good to get started on it early. Second, I think it's important to just remind everyone there's no free lunch in any of this, that unlike other trade measures which seek to liberalize, uh, a border-adjusted carbon content provision will restrict trade in general. And when you restrict trade, you reduce consumer welfare. So just as a starting point, you can take a, there's, a, there's a continuum in, in the world out there today. The far end of the continuum is chaos in Sri Lanka. The uh, close end of the continuum is voter frustration with five dollar a gallon gasoline. But either way, this is what you have to do to get climate change work accomplished, and no time like the present to make sure the voter is coming along with you. So
0: I just want to report that my wife bought gasoline on the eastern shore yesterday for four thirteen a gallon. So prices are
2: coming down. You well, know, the dollar's going up. I think is the more more important, but absolutely right. Gasoline prices have stabilized and are starting to decline. The strong dollar is a key component, and so maybe people will complain less. But look, I think. Either way, the voters got to be engaged. This is the major issue that the Supreme Court discussed in uh, EPA versus West Virginia, the recent sort of landmark case on regulation. And it's right for Congress to to deal with this. They are the elected representatives of the people. So thanks to Senator Whitehouse for getting on board and making something happen. And
0: Scott's final comment, Scott's wearing his economist hat. He's right about the trade effect. But this is also a case where we have to worry about the climate as well as trade. And I mean, he's right. There's no free lunch. But, uh, you know, it's appropriate to ask the American people, you need to pay something in order to get uh, a climate that we can all survive 50 or that our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren can survive.
1: Well, on that note, that wraps up this week's episode of The Trade Guys. Thank you for listening in and we will be back next week.
0: Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. To our listeners...